gonna be weird yes hi i'm amy and i'm chris and, and we're, we're sonosphere you're listening to wyxr 91.7 on your fm dial welcome to sonosphere on wyxr 91.7 fm or on wyxr.org you can also find sonosphere wherever you get your podcasts we're your hosts i'm amy and i'm chris Today on the show, we feature Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, a.k.a. Black Swan, and the vocal concert tradition of late 19th century America. We will hear from Professor Adam Gustafson, who has written about Greenfield as America's first black pop star. He wrote for The Conversation, an academic journal, and as a professor of music at Penn State. We talk about Greenfield's early life and rise in the operatic and pop scene in the 19th century. Also throughout the show, you will hear black, mostly female opera singers, and uh, we will feature uh, Ms. Leontine Price. Uh, we'll, she'll be singing first, uh, Norma Act One. And throughout the show, we'll hear from Harolyn Blackwell, um, also Jessie Norman. We'll have a couple of songs by her. And, um, you know, there wasn't any real good recordings of Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, so we won't hear her, but we will hear a recording later on, an old, old recording from 1921, uh, by Ravella Hughes, another great soprano um, on the actual Black Swan record label. So we'll hear that later on. So stay tuned to the show.
Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield came of age in antebellum America and grew her career at a time when European operatic concert songs made singers like Jenny Lynn and Catherine Hayes rich and famous. The concert soprano Greenfield was different. She was born a slave in Mississippi and raised by an abolitionist in Philadelphia. When she hit the pop scene in the 1850s, in Professor Gustafson's words, she shattered pre-existing beliefs about artistry and race.
My name is Adam Gustafson. I am uh, the Associate Teaching Professor of Music at Penn State Harrisburg. I'm also the Program Chair for Undergraduate Humanities. Pretty typical story. I grew up, my father had a wonderful album collection, and I spent most of my youth kind of combing through that listening to old music, and that kind of got the, the taste for uh, this sort of study of popular music specifically, and it's been a long haul ever since. So, so I teach a course, uh, The History of Popular Music, um, and so for me, it was really kind of trying to investigate where the seed for this concept of popular music comes from, because it is a very different kind of music than the classical tradition or the art music tradition, whatever we're calling it. Um, and, and so I was trying to kind of locate where is it that these new kind of strategies and new ways of creating music came from. Um, and it was really sort of around this sort of antebellum period that, uh, you know, we're we really start to see the strategies changing, right? Uh, with P.T. Barnum, uh, you know, basically becoming a marketing genius to promote Jenny Lynn. Uh, this is really where it's kind of born. The Minstrel Show is another space where we start seeing these strategies play out. And, and so it's in that that uh, uh, I, I sort of stumbled across uh, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield and then just became absolutely fascinated by this person. Um, for me, it was always it was always this question of, here you have this homegrown talent who's doing what are acknowledged as amazing things. You know, most critics, when they finally got to talking about her actual voice, said, yeah, that's that's a great instrument. And you have some, you know, some real talent there. Um, unfortunately, they could never get past that part. Uh, but I, I'm sitting there reading about this, you know, these reading these newspaper articles talking about how great she is. And yet it's this European woman who is being held up as the standard of the day. And I'm, you know, it, it just always seemed fascinating to me that here we are on the precipice of trying to identify an American intellectual art music movement. And we have someone there who's doing this, and yet we turn toward Jenny Lind time and time again to sort of, you know, uh, get into this notion of, of that's where the talent really is, or that's what good music really sounds like. And from there, it just became a question of why. Uh, and that led to, you know, a, a lot of these questions about gender and race and how that played out at that time. It's really interesting. I mean, Jenny Lind is a great example, uh, you know, transition as well, because what she does in America is very different than what was happening in Europe. She was singing full operas there. She's, you know, only singing songs in America because the taste is just not for full length opera at the time. But especially in places like New York City and Philadelphia, there's a real push in the 1840s and 50s to kind of create a world of uh, um, intellectual music, I guess I would say, or art music, something that was sort of higher brow that could compete with the European legacy. Um, and there's a lot of push at this time to sort of start to really dig into what America has to offer, or at least what America is offering, even if it's coming from European women who came over to sing uh, in the United States. Um, and so you get things like uh, in New York City, we start seeing the first sort of real attempt to do uh, serious music critique uh, in, in New York City. John Sullivan Dwight is going to uh, publish a big uh, music journal at that time where they're just trying to create this culture because the United States is basically understood musically as a backwater. Um, and, you know, what had been going on in the country, you know, on 
whatever cultural side you want to, you know, jump on was really considered lesser than, um, you know, and you can look at everything from the shape note singing tradition in the United States, which was, you know, basically understood as really poorly composed uh, European imitation up through marching band music, which at the time was really basically just using European models as, you know, uh, the sort of the tool to build these ensembles. And so, um, this is really the first time that we start seeing folks looking for sort of homegrown talent. Um, and it's right in the midst of Jenny Lind coming and sort of forcing this question of like, well, where are the Americans who can do this? Uh, and it's really interesting that the answer to that is Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield at the time. Um, and she, you know, it, it's interesting that here you have this homegrown talent, you know, who is, who is going through what she had to go through to get to where she was. Uh, versus this European talent and the arguments and the comparisons are, are just constant in her career. The very moniker Black Swan is sort of a, 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 an attempt to make fun of uh, Jenny Lind's moniker, which was the Swedish Nightingale. Um, and, you know, Black Swan, that very label carries a connotation uh, that, that was less than positive versus Jenny Lind's moniker, which is all things beautiful and, and, and serene and pure. The American tradition comes from the African-American community in mm -hmm. music most of the time, you know, when we're talking about music and American music. Sure. Yeah. And, and it even, you know, that that becomes sort of the the go the go to space for, you know, ammunition for a lot of composers who, who are coming to the United States you know, who are borrowing and saying, look, this is really what America sounds like. This is where the real creativity lies. And yet it's being rejected as, as folks like Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield are touring around, so. You are tuned in to WYXR 91.7 or WYXR.org, and we're your hosts, Chris. And I'm Amy. Every Monday we're here at 4 to 5 p.m., and in case you're just now turning in to WYXR, we are a nonprofit radio station, and we rely on you to stay on the air. So if you'd like to make a donation to this, this station, you can go to WYXR.org. Every little bit helps, and thanks for tuning in today. Now we'll go back to our interview with Professor Adam Gustafson on the rise of Black Swan, the popular concert singer in antebellum America, right here on WYXR 91.7.
And today, you know, we're talking about Elizabeth Greenfield and, and Black Swan. So will you tell us a little bit about who she was? She was uh, a, a singer um, who was sort of coming of age just as the United States is kind of trying to figure out where it sits artistically in the world. Um, it's an interesting time period. It's right as sort of the American concept of popular music is being developed, but it's also happening alongside um, sort of this uh, need to kind of prove where America sits amongst uh, European musicians in that tradition. And so uh, it's, it's just a really interesting time period uh, in terms of, of all the stuff that's going on at that time. Uh, she was born, um, as far as we know, uh, in Natchez, Mississippi, um, around 1820, although uh, there's uh, a couple of uh, other versions of that account uh, early as 1819, as late as 1821. Um, and uh, she was the child of slaves. Uh, and basically, she came under the patronage of her namesake, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, who was a woman who uh, had uh, she was from Philadelphia. She uh, basically became a Quaker and decided that she uh, wanted to follow through with that sensibility and freed um, a number of slaves, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield's uh, parents among them. Um, they were part of a program at the time uh, that was sort of meant to return slaves to Africa. Um, and so they uh, ended up going back, as far as we know, uh, and Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield stayed with uh, her namesake and moved to Philadelphia. At that point, she was sort of there, kind of living with her, helping to take care of her. Uh, and it's during that time that she starts to uh, take an interest in singing. Um, and uh, sort of as we get to the late 1840s and we're sort of moving into the 1850s, she eventually gets discovered uh, by the Buffalo Music Association in New York, and they kind of take her under wing and start supporting some of her first uh, major public performances. Uh, by the early 1850s, she uh, undergoes her first major tour of the United States. Uh, she spends about three years going all around the Midwest uh, and, and uh, the Northeast, uh, sort of everywhere from Cincinnati up to um, New York City and all points in between. Um, and after that, eventually we'll go to uh, Europe uh, under the patronage of Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, who took uh, an interest in her and, and uh, she will eventually end up performing in front of Queen Victoria and uh, doing all kinds of fun stuff there. Uh, once she kind of wraps that up, um, she ends up back in Philadelphia and that's sort of where she spends the remainder of her days. Uh, there were some legal disputes and most of the money that she had amassed during all of these tours, uh, she eventually loses. Um, and uh, by the 1870s, uh, she passes away. She amassed a fortune. Was that something that she was able to do through those performances and through touring early? Yeah, she had a, a lot less leeway uh, in, in this sense. Um, she was sort of beholden to the folks who were supporting her. Uh, and, and she received a small allowance uh, at the death of her namesake um, from, from that estate. Uh, most of her touring money, though, went uh, to um, her manager, uh, Colonel uh, Joseph Wood. I, he was a, a sort of a, a P.T. Barnum light from Cincinnati who ran a house of oddities um, and was basically trying to adopt the same template. But the specific reason why he chose Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield was the sort of shock factor of her race on these stages where she was singing stuff again that wasn't supposed to be meant for uh, African-Americans. And so um, he really ends up 
benefiting the most financially from from her appearances. Uh, she becomes, uh, you know, uh, again somebody who uh, there there are letters from her uh, to him and to other folks where she tours, you know, saying basically, "Why aren't you paying me? We had a contract." Um, and so it wasn't uh, unheard of for folks just to not pay her, or uh, you know, uh, for folks to sort of forget that they even had a contract. And these were the kinds of issues she navigated um, versus someone like Jenny Lind, who you know from the get-go when she came to America, named an egregious price um, and was basically given whatever she wanted as she navigated that. We pretend limit bird, nightingale, blackbird, how is it you sing? Who can you jubilate sitting in cages, never taking contracted by somebody who were in, in supported essentially by somebody who was just an overtly racist man, somebody who had no real inclinations toward, you know, civil rights issues of the day or anything positive in, in that sense, um, and who had made his living as somebody who, you know, basically peddled in oddities in, in these kinds of museums. Um, having said that, you know, P.T. Barnum does kind of establish this new trend of music management when he does bring Jenny Lind over. So I'm not 100% certain that she was brought in as an oddity so much as she was brought in as just another sort of attempt to make money off of this new thing that was becoming popular. Having said that, I'm sure it didn't hurt that, you know, you could build up all of this other stuff around her, you know, um, the racial issues at play, the gender issues at play, that certainly would have, you know, built up a lot of interest in, in going to see her. I guess just kind of going back and thinking about um, what you mentioned around, um, you know, the racism and the sexism that she uh, felt throughout her career. What is her legacy today? And then... Um, was she an advocate at all? Did she do any speaking out at the time at all? Not so much during her actual singing career. And again, this becomes the critique from the other side of things is that she's being implored by civil rights activists of the day to do more, right? Um, having said that, the very fact that she's being sort of supported after she kind of gets up and going, her European trip is supported by and large by Harriet Beecher Stowe. So she's aligning herself, uh, you know, in that world. Uh, her music is not overtly, you know, within that. She was known for singing, uh, you know, the minstrel tunes essentially uh, alongside songs like I Am Free. So it kind of ran the full gamut um, and, and she wasn't really known as being uh, sort of an activist or what we would call today an activist uh, during her singing career. After her singing career though, she sort of does go into that and she was known to you know, give uh, public speeches about sort of her place in music and, and again, this, this notion of intellectualism and, and how that lives in the various music cultures that she was taking part in. Did she open up opportunities uh, for other Black women in opera? And Sure. Yeah. I would like to say that the doors were flung open and, you know, uh, we all came around. Sadly, um, that's not really the case. Uh, you know, 
there will be a handful of, of, of opera singers, you know, throughout the late 1800s who kind of follow on her, in her footsteps. Um, but it's really not until, uh, you know, honestly, the last generation or two that we start seeing a push by opera to kind of, you know, break down some of those barriers and, and you know, be a more welcoming space for uh, for musicians of, of all backgrounds. So um, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a game changer in that sense, but she does become kind of this symbol of, somebody who overcame the odds. I mean, you look at uh, her New York premiere, for example, this was a premiere that she went to uh, Metropolitan Hall. New York City was the biggest hall in the world uh, at the time. Um, it was built for Jenny Lind uh, for her to come and sing in. Um, and she goes and uh, announced to her, the hall decides that they're going to uh, not invite African-American patrons. Uh, they put an ad out a couple of days before the concert saying, look, this is not going to happen. Um, and uh, there were riot police out in front of the hall to make sure that nothing was going to happen. Um, the Frederick Douglass's newspaper starts to go nuts about this, you know, talking about uh, why she would even give this concert if her own people weren't going to be allowed in to actually listen to the singing that was happening. Um, and so she's really getting it from all sides at this point, right? She's supposed to go on stage and be this representative that, look, everybody's capable of this kind of intellectual capacity whatever that means. Um, and, and yet she's also hearing from the other side, look, you're not doing enough, right, uh, to, to sort of help the cause. And, and she does go on to uh, become a speaker and, and, you know, start working in those avenues. But initially it's, it's really interesting to watch how little control she has over the stages she's going on, the folks who are invited to actually be a part of, you know, attending those concerts. Um, and so, you know, it, it, just imagining how difficult it must have been for her to navigate, you know, this idea of wanting a career and wanting to be a musician, but also having the baggage of all of America's problems thrust onto her as she's kind of trying to navigate this. It wasn't expected for somebody of her background to be successful or to be as great as she was in mm -hmm. performing. Yeah, well, and she also, I mean, she was known for one of her big kind of, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but her shtick, her, her sort of, her big moment in her concerts was she had a, a song called I Am Free um, that she would sing in two different registers. So it was a duet. She would sing it in, in the soprano register, and then uh, there was a male tenor part, essentially, that she would also sing. She had a huge range. Um, and that was another sort of layer to this because, you know, there was this notion of femininity at play as well, right? Um, and so here you have this African-American woman who's singing in a range that's understood as uh, sort of the, the, the place of masculinity. Um, and, and that becomes another sort of avenue for critiquing her. Um, and there are all kinds of, uh, you know, newspaper reviews and, and uh, music journals that, that almost start talking about her in animalistic terms, right? They, they describe her, uh, rather than talking about her singing, almost, uh, you know, all of these during her American tour, almost all of her critiques started off by describing her physical body, um, and then would go into this vocal trick that she did, and, and you know, the, the real conversation became whether or not she was truly even a woman versus, you know, whether or not she had artistic merit, or whether it was really cool to hear, a, you know, a woman singer singing in these two very different registers. So, um, it, you know, today we would be just blown away by that concept. And, and back then it became more ammunition to prove that she wasn't supposed to be on these stages.
African tradition, especially in America, it was really all about oral uh, histories and, and passing down, um, you know, storytelling and singing and all of that. So you said that she got an interest in singing then, but I don't know if you can talk anything like about how maybe that background could also have informed some of what she took to opera. Yeah, it's interesting because this becomes kind of the dispute of her entire career, right? It's sort of this, you know, these two different traditions kind of colliding. Um, and it's it's happening right at the same time as the biggest popular phenomenon of the day is becoming famous, uh, Jenny Lind, who um, is now famous because of the P.T. Barnum movie that came out a few years back. Um, but uh, she was immensely popular. And she was sort of, you know, seen as the high point of European culture in that tradition, which was considered sort of the intellectual height of the musical world at the time. Uh, and so because Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield comes from a different background, whether she's even accepted in circles where opera, you know, uh, is being sung uh, is, is the big question of the day, right? How is it that we have this African-American woman singing this music that is supposed to be so intellectual that, you know, these sort of emotional, uh, you know, traditions that come out of the African-American singing tradition as was considered at the time, uh, it just doesn't jive well. Uh, and, and they can't really figure out how it is that she's doing this. Um, and this really becomes one of the main criticisms of her as she's sort of trying to get her career up and going is, you know, uh, it, she's just not the right complexion for the genre being sung. And a lot of folks had, you know, real problems with that. important thing is is just to sort of stop and consider how dangerous this would have been for her right i mean this is a time period where you know she was touring right along the border of what's going to become you know the battleground the battle lines you know between north and south in the civil war and this is an era where you could just disappear um and and that would be the end of it you know uh, so it's it's interesting that she gets all this criticism about not being brave enough or standing up enough for you know the the, the movement but at the same time her very existence and her very willingness to step out on a stage where she knows people are going to make fun of her. You know, um, there, there's one write-up of her in New York where she's described as a biped hippopotamus stumbling onto the stage. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of criticism to, to withstand that every day for, you know, the better part of three years as she's touring the United States. That, to me, is the biggest act of bravery. Um, and, and to face that danger head-on is really, it's something that I think is hard for 
our sensibilities to get our minds around, or at least mine, I, I guess I can't speak for everyone else, but when I, when I stop and consider just how dangerous this was for her, you know, the very fact that her manager was this deeply racist man who only saw her as a commodity, um, that puts you in a very vulnerable space. Uh, and, and the fact that she withstood that and, and did everything that she did is just amazing. Author and musicologist Naomi Andre wrote in Black Opera about how blackness is represented in opera, not just from the singer or artist's perspective, but from the opera crews, casting decisions, and training in film operas, and the audience segregation in live opera. She discusses representation in specific operas like Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, and how American folk opera maintained stereotypes of the time. Andre envisions a broadening audience for opera while recognizing the work to do to get there won't be easy. Opera can be relevant, provocative, and empowering, says critic Julia Chabosky, and can play an important role in advocacy and social change, according to Andre. Understanding the role black men and women played in the shaping of American opera is part of how we move forward with the opera of tomorrow. And just this year, for the first time in 138 years, New York Metropolitan Opera presented an opera by a black composer. Trumpeter Terence Blanchard opened the season with Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Blanchard, more known in the jazz world, and he also composed more than 40 film scores, including Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Blanchard, in his words about the premiere, he says, this production is going to make a statement about our community and how our community has been overlooked in the operatic world. And we will now hear Will Liverman sing Peculiar Grace from Fire Shut Up Inside Me by Terrence Blanchard, right here on WYXR. I once was a boy of peculiar grace, a dangerous existence for a man of my race. 
You are tuned into Sonosphere right here on WYXR 91.7. And we are featuring Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield today. She is a soprano back in the uh, antebellum America, one of the first black opera singers. Uh, not a lot of recording from her, but we have been listening to um, more contemporary uh, black opera singers. We just heard Dream With Me by Leonard Bernstein, but sung by Harolyn Blackwell uh, from Peter Pan. And uh, before that, we heard um, we heard Peculiar Grace, which is from uh, Terrence Blanchard's latest opera at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, um, Fire Shut Up Inside Me. We heard... Um, yeah, we heard Peculiar Grace there before that. So we will continue featuring Black opera singers. Coming up next is Puccini's Tosca, Act Two, sung by Leontine Price from 1963. So stay tuned right here to WYXR 91.7.
tuned in to WYXR 91.7 and this show is Sonosphere here every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. We are featuring Elizabeth T. Greenfield aka Black Swan. She was an operatic singer back in antebellum America and Black Swan may have paved the way for many female black concert singers to come in the 1920s and 30s. But at that same time the blues singers had an equally smart and inspiring legacy of their own to make and the clashes of high and low art borne out along race and gender lines. The very record company that took its name from Elizabeth T. Greenfield, Black Swan, in the early 1920s, turned down many of the iconic blues women of the day, like Ma Rainey. But Black Swan records did feature many greats, like Ethel Waters, and other opera singers and sopranos, like the soprano Ravella Hughes. She's a classically trained singer and also one of the first African-American opera singers to make a recording. So, we will hear a very short uh, snippet of um, Charles Wakefield's Cadman, which has uh, many Native American themes actually in this song. This is a recording on Black Swan Records from 1921 called At Dawning. And we'll hear, um, we'll actually hear a phonograph record uh, by Bill Doggett. Uh, he, he's, he's playing the phonograph of Ravella Hughes here. So we'll leave you here with a short snippet of Ravella Hughes's At Dawning. Sonosphere will return with a follow-up episode on the Black Swan record label, one of the first black-owned labels in America. Its short lifespan had a big impact, and we will also discuss the 1927 flood and how it shaped the popular blues artist of the time. Thanks for tuning in to WYXR, Raised by by Sound.
WYXR is raised by sound. 91.7 FM and online at WYXR.org.